0: Hi, I'm Carrie Schmidt, and this is Making Sense, a podcast produced by the STAR Institute in an effort to further our commitment to impacting quality of life by developing and promoting best practices for sensory health and wellness through treatment, education, and research. Occupational therapy best practices ask us to integrate knowledge into practice. On this season of Making Sense, each episode offers a different conversation aimed at translating the most current research into clinical action for occupational therapy practitioners. This season of Making Sense is sponsored by Calm Strips. Calm Strips began as a small piece of blue tape wrapped on the founder's finger. He looked a bit silly wearing the tape, not to mention he had a lone sticky finger at the end of the day. So then came the idea to create something that you could stick anywhere and take everywhere, you may need a little bit of calm. Calm Strips is unwaveringly dedicated to their mission to further destigmatize the need for support and help. Calmstrips Strips, take a bit of calm with you everywhere. I'm joined today by Shia Shreether and Deandra Straton. They're both PhD candidates in the psychology department at Michigan State University's Clinical Science Program. We're going to discuss their 2021 article, Short Report Call to Action for Autism Clinicians in Response to Anti Black Racism. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks. Yeah, having you. Um, because we have two guests today, I'm actually going to ask if you would introduce yourselves and um, tell us a little bit about your education background, some of your interests. So that um, the listeners can get um, used to your voices.
1: Um, So Akshia, do you want to start? Sure. Um, So I'm Akshia. Um, I'm a fourth year student in the clinical science program. Um, And I guess in terms of my background, um, I identify as an immigrant Southeast Asian woman. Um, I started studying psychology in undergrad at Clark University um, in Massachusetts and um, continued in on that path, um, you know, between undergrad and then coming to grad school. Um, I took a couple years off where I worked in behavioral therapy um, as well as received my master's from Boston University in Psychology. Um, and I've been at MSU for four years now studying primarily the implementation of evidence-based practices in community settings uh, for autistic youth. So um, I think, I'm really passionate about addressing some of these health disparities, um, particularly in community settings and in low resource settings for people who are historically excluded or marginalized um, in the U.S.
2: Yeah, my name is Deandra Street and I am also a PhD candidate at Michigan State University um, in our clinical science program, which is in our psychology department. Um, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology from Michigan State and a bachelor's degree in psychology and educational studies from Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. Um, I also have my pre-K to fourth grade um, teacher certification in the state of Pennsylvania as well. most of my work um, kind of start I started off kind of wondering do I like education I want to go that route do I really like psychology and go that route and I kind of landed at a research position um, at the University of Pennsylvania doing some work on um, improving autism services in the school system in the school district of Philadelphia and that's kind of how I feel into this work um, and helping improve the services that autistic youth receive in community settings, Um, also particularly lower resource settings, like school systems, early intervention system, and most of my recent work has been in the Medicaid system. Um, My research interest is Also very similar to Akshia, um, I'm interested in how do we support community providers um, to use evidence-based practices that we know work really well in lab settings and now are moving out into community settings, particularly low-resource settings. So um, how do we support the providers who are trying to make these practices work in settings that um, often have a lot of road bumps that they have to work through? and a lot of my work has been focused on the use of Project Impact, um, which is an evidence-based intervention, and I am a master trainer in that intervention. So I've provided a lot of workshops and consultation to uh, like over seventy-five professionals in the United States and Canada in that um, intervention, which is like a parent coaching intervention. Um, yes, yeah, so that's a little about about me.
0: Thank you both so much. And. We will um, include references and resources in the show notes um, and in the in the page associated with um, the podcast today. So if you heard something you're interested in, um, for example, the IMPACT um, program or any other um, reference, including the reference to this really meaningful work, um, this research article that you both have written. So tell me a little bit about I guess, introduce the issue to us, raise awareness around this issue that you found um, and found important enough to to work together to write this research article.
1: Um, Okay, I can start. Um, I guess to kind of backtrack a little bit um, in terms of what brought us to writing this work. Um, So I think Deandra and I both um, have been really interested in some of these health disparities. And I think as women of color, it's something that's near and dear to our hearts. but in our in our work at MSU, we haven't kind of focused on addressing some of those racial disparities as directly. Um, but last year, we had the opportunity to put together a presentation focused on anti-Black racism um, within our field. And so for us, we do research on autism. Um, but within our program, other folks were putting together presentations on other populations or other topics all related to this idea um, of anti-Black racism. So. It actually stemmed from a presentation that we put together for our program, um, primarily made up of trainee clinicians, um, licensed clinicians, and researchers in our psychology department. um, And we we kind of realized that this could end up being a paper that, you know, would reach a wider audience beyond our program, um, and I think we were both really excited about the idea specifically of outlining some of those steps, um, which is sort of towards the end of the paper, you know, really wanting to give people something concrete, um, concrete action steps that they could work towards, as well as sharing some resources.
2: Yeah, and just building off of that, I, I totally agree with you. Actually, I think a big um, push for us to like write this up as a publication and make it open access so that it was easily accessible to folks was to really have like that appendix of resources that we included in the paper so that folks, so we often hear from people like, well, what can I do as an individual clinician with such a big structural problem, like systemic racism? What can I do in my day-to-day life? Um, And so we wanted to put together an initial set of resources that we hope to kind of build off of. in our, uh, in our website, which has those resources as well that we're hoping to build up and get suggestions from other folks so that um, people have a, a starting off point when they're looking for what can I do as a clinician.
0: Yes, I'll attest to the fact that it's a beautifully written paper. It is very accessible and very action oriented. And so as a clinician, I really appreciated that. I did not know what a pervasive issue this was um, throughout the pathway from identification of concerns um, in black autistic youth, all the way through the pathway to intervention. Um, So talk a little bit about that, like the clinician's responsibility and understanding this issue. And then um, even the figure that you used to illustrate the pathway, some of the um, explicit indications throughout the pathway that you found um, that are specifically
2: um, anti-Black and racist? Um, So we did try to develop like a working, um, I think we called it like a working model of the like the clinical pathway that um, Black families sort of navigate in order to access autism services for their um, family members. And one of the things we really wanted to highlight were like all the many steps in that not super linear all the time process um, with some like concrete examples of what that might look like for a black family. So um, we tried to highlight that in the figure um, that we included. One of the first steps that a a family of any um, autistic child um, will go through and even if it's an autistic, an adult um, looking for some sort of diagnosis um, would be uh, caregiver provider or self-identification of some sort of developmental concern such as like a social communication delay or something like that um, so that's kind of like the f- one of the first um, pieces along that clinical pathway that we um, outline. Um, another piece which usually comes after that moment would be um, developmental surveillance by providers where um, oftentimes unfortunately families are, um, sometimes inappropriately asked to wait a long time to monitor things when really maybe they should have um, been referred much sooner. Um, then you would be looking at age-appropriate ASD screening tools, um, many of which are not validated or normed in diverse samples. Um, and so we are we are losing a lot of the sensitivity in black um, families. Um, then we have referrals for diagnostic testing. Um, an assessment of co-occurring conditions. So um, often these referrals will go out to the early intervention system in the United States or they might go through the school district um, and people are being referred to different types of providers, maybe a developmental pediatrician. There's lots of um, systems at play in the diagnostic process and we see high rates of misdiagnosis for black autistic youth, which have been really well established in the literature at this point. Um, A lot of folks getting um, conduct disorder diagnoses instead of autism, for example, um, particularly if if they are black. Um, Then they might be applying for things like medical assistance if they're eligible, so things like Medicaid waivers, um, they have to navigate that process. Um, They are going to at some point identify available services that may be appropriate for that person. Um, unfortunately, there's often a lot of bias in that process and maybe less coordination of care or dismissal of service needs um, in that piece. And then you actually hopefully get someone to the point where they actually are initially accessing um, a service or multiple services. Um, but we do see less use of outpatient services, specialized services, and delays and access to care at that point um, in Black families. And then um, from that point, it's not. All smooth sailing, even, even still, um, we see sort of families having to continuously decide whether they want to obtain or receive services or continue receiving that service, depending on their experiences with those providers who often lack cultural humility um, and may make the families feel more or less comfortable um, continuing in those services. And then the ongoing service navigation would be sort of one of the final pieces in the pathway we outline, um, which would mean like even actually transitions across systems, for example, um, moving from pre, preschool or early intervention system into the school system, into kindergarten, or moving from middle school into high school, things look very different in terms of service use, um, or having to be reevaluated for eligibility in some of these service systems. We see lots of issues occur at that moment as well. Um, yeah, so we kind of outlined that process and I've just kind of noted a few of the examples that we provide as well um, that kind of go along with those pieces in the pathway. Pointed out that way,
0: you can see how pervasive it is, right? It is not at one point in the, in the clinical pathway. It is at every point. If the caregiver um, doesn't encounter it in one, doesn't encounter anti-Black racism in one step, they might encounter it in the next step. Um, so Akshia, take us back to kind of that early, early concern phase for parents. Um, they are communicating some concern that they're seeing, but, um, you guys highlighted in the literature that black autistic children are two and a half times more likely to be misdiagnosed. So take us back kind of to those early days of parents, identifying some concerns, bringing those concerns rightfully to clinicians, um, asking for attention um, to those concerns. What's happening there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, as we talk about, and as Deandra mentioned, these these health disparities are really pretty well established. We know that Black kids are diagnosed a lot later uh, than their white counterparts, and we also know they're more likely to be misdiagnosed. And I think part of this is, that sort of implicit bias, like Deandra mentioned um, Black autistic children may be more likely to be diagnosed with something like conduct disorder because part at least in part, because of stereotypes around, you know, Black kids being more likely to be aggressive or defiant, as opposed to showing some of the more autistic characteristics that we, that we may be aware of. Um, so that I think there's certainly a lot of provider bias that's playing a role Um, As well as uh, something that's been pretty well established in the literature, kind of this dismissal of what black caregivers are bringing to the table. So um, as we mentioned in the paper, you know, a lot of these families are having to to see three times as many providers just to get that diagnosis, like having to go through that process over and over again um, in order to get someone who listens to them, believes them and is willing to take them seriously to then, you know, make sure that their their child is receiving the right screening, the right assessment, and going through that process. Um, I think it's also really important to highlight then the downstream effects of all of that. Um, as Deandra mentioned, it's not a linear pathway, but if a child is diagnosed, you know, a year later, then that means they're getting access to all those services At least a year later, if not more. Um, If they're being misdiagnosed, they may not not be getting access to the appropriate interventions or have appropriate school accommodations or whatever it might be. So I think that early um, screening and early assessment piece is really important when we think about how these biases may play a role because then they impact many of the other parts of that pathway as well. Right. And one
0: thing the literature supports is early intervention is where we see some gains in some of the most impacted developmental areas um, in autistic youth. And so I can see that downstream effect. If you're having to see three providers to get um, a diagnosis, the delay, as you noted in your paper, could be up to three years between when you have Um, identified your concerns, and then when somebody gives you the diagnosis, if you could talk a little bit about the the barriers that are added to the racism, um, you know, barriers um, specific to either geographical resources or even financial resources.
2: Well, kind of going off of what we were just talking about, um, Black caregivers report longer wait times and actually three times the number of visits with a provider in order to receive a diagnosis even despite having similar clinical presentations at the time of assessment. So we know that those are some of those barriers, right? Just having to wait longer, having to see more people, those are some things you already have mentioned. Um, Then you have, uh, in the United States at least, um, a conflation of class and race where um, we see a lot of these families Um, Maybe coming from lower income backgrounds, which already puts them at a disadvantage um, of getting access to services in a timely manner and also getting enough or um, sufficient um, services, particularly outpatient services or specialist care. Um, So we see kind of the impact of class and then also these um, these race, the systemic racism that we've been chatting about already Um, And then what we often will see with black families is that um, the as we've discussed, the, the concerns have been discussed with maybe a pediatrician, for example, or maybe a daycare provider or whoever it might be for quite some time and it's not taken seriously and then Um, We often will see a spike in diagnoses in black children um, once they become school age. So like around five to eight years old, once they're in the school system and the um, teachers are identifying some of these concerns, maybe they're starting to validate some of the concerns that are already there, or they're starting to notice concerns that weren't already um, pointed out to the family at that point. And so um, we see a lot of school age children starting to get caught by that system, which is great, except it's much later um, in, in life than um, their white, white counterparts. So um, I think that's also um, a piece of the puzzle as well, is um, there's many systems at play. There are pediatricians, there's daycare providers, there's early intervention, there's school providers. Um, and not a lot of resources, and then if you add in all these other pieces, it can really make for a difficult picture and a, and a much longer delay in accessing services that people are needing to access. One of the things that you highlighted was the importance of
0: relationship in the um, the care continuum, and so it occurs to me that teachers are having a very consistent presentation, for example, of the child on a daily basis have formed a relationship um, and um, are therefore advocating for the child. Um, And it saddens me that the primary caregiver's voice as the expert in their child is somehow dismissed in the process until a teacher who notices the same things brings it forward.
2: Yeah, that can often be the case, which is why I think schools are a really important um, service system um, for autistic people that we often overlook because um, they're really in school for a long part of their day for so many years, they have those long standing relationships with teachers and actually most kids um, on the spectrum are getting a lot of services through the school system, um, and so they're a really important piece of this puzzle, um, and definitely that relational piece as well. For a lot of families, they may not really be working with other providers um, because maybe their just maybe their concerns were not picked up, or maybe they didn't um, know about some of the um, developmental concerns that were being exhibited by the child. And then um, maybe they've only really met with a pediatrician by that point until they get to the school system. And so. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important piece uh, for these families. I don't know if you were going to say something there, Akshia. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I was just going to say that I think that's one of the things that stood out to me the most as we were kind of doing our research for this paper um, is sort of that mismatch between what providers are reporting are some of those barriers to, you know, a family receiving services um, versus what parents are reporting. So, you know, a lot of what we're seeing from studies is that providers are saying, you know, the parents don't have maybe the motivation or don't have the time um, and some of those, you know, characteristics that are preventing them from receiving services, whereas parents are reporting that they are having these racist interactions and racist encounters and that they are, in fact, highly motivated and really prioritize getting services for their child. Um, So I think that mismatch is really important to think about, especially because, There's also then research that shows that if there is a collaborative relationship, whether it's provider and parent or teacher and parent, um, if there's a process like shared decision-making where they're coming up with goals together and making choices about the child's education, their accommodations, their services together, then that can actually be really beneficial for the child and for that relationship overall. Um, So I think that that relationship is highly important to think about.
0: You highlighted that there are so many clinicians involved in the in the pathway, the clinical pathway. Um, there are a lot of opportunities for clinicians to recognize their duty um, to educate themselves about the intersection of anti-black racism and autism. You do a beautiful job in this paper of making very explicit recommendations and calls to action around um, how we can all work for systemic change. So I would love if we could just go through the call to action steps. Just tell us what you found. What can we do to be a force for change in this broken system?
1: Sure. Um, I can start us off um, and I'm just going to kind of go in order in the way that we talk about it in the paper. Um, I think the, the very first thing that came to our mind when we were trying to think through, like, what have we read? What do we know um, from the literature? What are we seeing in other similar type of work Um, is really this inclusion and amplification of the voices of whoever is being impacted, right? So I know in the autism world, we're talking a lot more now, especially about Um, really listening to actually autistic people and and including them from the get-go, whether it's in the research process or in clinical work or in the education system, whatever it might be. Um, And similarly, when we're trying to address anti-Black racism, I think really making sure that we're amplifying Black autistic voices in our work, um, whether that's a clinical organization or whatever your, your setting might be, um, really involving the people who are going to be impacted by the decisions that are being made, um, whether that's you know serving on an advisory committee or um, whatever role, leadership role or um, stakeholder role they can take on. And I think related to that is to make sure that we are also then um, compensating people for their time. So if you're going to hire or ask somebody to, you know, serve on a committee or something like that. We really need to make sure that we are um, adequately compensating them for their time and not just asking for free labor. Um, so that was one that I think we tried to highlight.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then the second one um, would be continuously learning and acknowledging the ways in which your specific discipline has perpetuated anti-Black racism and is continuing to perpetuate anti-Black racism. and. Um, you know, that's going to be different for each discipline, but um, it's going to be present in each discipline. Um, And some uh, recent work actually in your field, I was just Googling Google Scholaring a little bit before our meeting, um, has come out some really um, great work in the last couple of years that I'm happy to share some of the references I found. But, um, I guess the Journal of Occupational Science recently had an anti-racism virtual issue and a position statement to mobilize against racism. There was a, um, a paper by um, Marilyn Grenier um, about cultural competency and the reproduction of white supremacy in occupational therapy education, um, there are some commentaries about that um, anti-racism pledge by folks like Dr. Cronenberg, and um, yeah, there's a few of those types of papers that would be really helpful. Those are the kinds of things we're advocating. You know, thinking about your specific discipline and your setting, um, what are what is the history of racism in occupational science, for example? What has it looked like up until this point? What does it look like currently? Um, And knowing that history and teaching that in pre-service training, so like graduate school, but also um, continuing education and in-service training um, for folks who are out in the field already and have already graduated, knowing that discipline-specific history and, um, you know, having that knowledge that that doesn't continue to be perpetuated in your field. Thank you. Thank you for making that field specific. And
0: we will um, gather those resources too and include them in the show notes, because um, again, you are so gifted at making this um, accessible and actionable. And so everybody listening can go and and access some of these resources specific to um, our discipline. Um, So talk a little bit about um, the third step, which is um, cultural humility.
1: Sure. Um, so, you know, I think people have different sort of terms for for this cultural humility, cultural competence, things like that. Um, we really wanted to focus on cultural humility because it sort of encompasses this idea that it's this lifelong, never ending process. We all come to the table with implicit biases, uh, whether we grew up in the U.S., whether we grew up abroad, um, regardless of sort of uh, the ways that we identify, things like that. We all have biases about different folks. Um, so really kind of addressing that and acknowledging acknowledging that in ourselves, which can be really challenging to do, um, but it is a really, really important first step, I think, um, in order to really engage with this work and make some meaningful changes in how we're doing clinical work, how we're engaging with different people and things like that. Um, so we wanted to to really highlight that and kind of amplify some of the previous work that's been done in this area, not necessarily, you know, within the autism field specifically, but there is a lot out there um, on cultural humility. And a lot of the resources that are on our website and in the appendix are sort of starting, you know, foundational steps um, for developing some of those skills, kind of seeing where you're at, evaluating yourself. Um, I'm thinking about like, what are some next steps that I can use to kind of work on my cultural humility?
0: I love that you point out too, depending on where you're starting, you might need a, an injection, right? Of a lot of workshop, workshops, education, trainings around this issue, but it doesn't stop there. Just take one step on your journey, right? Just um, one step along the continuum towards improving um, your cultural humility, and it truly is a lifelong process. Um, And so thank you for for pointing that out. I was amazed at how complex the pathway is. Um, And you did a great job of breaking it down and some of the steps um, along the pathway. I think oftentimes clinicians are um, one stop in the pathway. And so it's hard for us to see beyond maybe the steps that came before or the steps that come after you've done a great job of highlighting the challenges of the different steps, but that is, um, call to action number four. Talk a little bit about the mindfulness around, uh, the complex pathway.
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, I've already kind of discussed some of the steps along that pathway that we, um, kind of developed that working model in our figure but um, you know it's starting all the way from those developmental concerns and whether um, you know those are followed up on or you know the developmental surveillance and then going all the way through towards like continuously deciding whether you want to continue receiving services or if you're seeking out new services or sort of that service navigation across systems or across services so um, there's so many steps as you mentioned um, that families are going through and Um, our fourth recommendation is really being mindful of that pathway, um, being mindful of the steps that happened before you, um, and the steps that may be happening concurrently with your service or, or later on as well, and actually being able to, um, be brave and name any instances of racism that you may be hearing, um, from families, particularly about, um experiences they've had from, you know, the, the parts in the pathway before you and being able to kind of, um, name that for families, um, can really build a lot of that relationship building and that trust that we were talking about earlier. Um, so kind of being able to name that really doing your, um, due diligence, like some of the other recommendations recommend about like knowing about your own discipline, um, and the history of your discipline and trying your best to, um, not perpetuate that history, um, but also knowing a little bit about all the steps that someone has taken to get to your um, your door and being mindful like they may have been really hard in many other of those steps and they may be really tired by the time to get to you and they may may have their guard up for very good reasons. And so being mindful of that, being open to having those kinds of discussions with families, um, helping to discuss with other providers in your setting, you know any um experiences the family may has had have had that make it more difficult for them to maybe trust you or um maybe just knowing a little bit about that history for that family Um, And maybe pointing out for them what the next step in the pathway might look like beyond your service. That's something that we don't think a lot about, but that care coordination can be really, really helpful Um, when a family is feeling really um, unsupported by all these different service systems, being able to say, hey, you know, you might consider speech therapy services. Here's how you would go about getting a referral for that. I can't necessarily do that for you, but I can tell you a little bit about what that process might look like because they may not actually already be well connected with someone they trust who can kind of help them figure out those other pieces of the of the pathway.
0: I love that. I think the awareness that we're bringing to the complexity helps us to zoom out And really look at call to action number five, which is we need to advocate for system level changes. This is not about one step in the process. This is about a system um, that is um, historically anti-Black and racist. Um, And so we need to zoom out, advocate for
1: changes and um, tell us how to do that. Um, I think there's many different ways and we in our paper just list out a couple of ideas but I'm sure that we missed a lot of other ways that people can advocate for systemic change. Um, I think, you know, we we wanted to highlight both the individual level things that we can do whether that's workshops on cultural humility, as well as some of the organizational or system level changes that we should be making in order to, to really have impactful changes right. Um, So some of the suggestions that we included were things like we could have group parent training models um, where we're working with a number of families as opposed to just working with one family at a time in an effort to kind of, you know, address some of the long wait lists that we know exist for a lot of organizations um, so that we're just seeing more people and providing more people with services. Um, Another one that is talked about, whether it's in research, education, clinical work, um, is increasing the number of Black clinicians in our workforce, Um, and that that means making training programs, like for example, a clinical science program like ours, more accessible um, in terms of applying, in terms of being you know, someone who is competitive for one of these programs, and then also making sure that once you get into the training program or you're in that training pipeline, that there are support systems in place, um, because we know attrition is a really big problem as well. So if you're going to recruit more Black clinicians, making sure that there are supports in place so that they stay within that clinical workforce and are, you know, not feeling like pushed out or experiencing discrimination on a daily basis to the point that they are no longer wanting to stay. So I think there's a lot of issues within that training pipeline um, that could be addressed in a system level way.
0: That's great, thank you. Your paper was so good at using the evidence basis to show um, what has happened systemically um, in this clinical pathway, but you didn't stop there. You really um, were proactive in your approach and encouraging of, um, of, of action-oriented um, ways to address this issue. So I really appreciate that. Um, I would love for you to tell us if people are wanting to know more about your work Um, find these resources that we're mentioning, um, tell us where they can go to find
2: that. Well, we have taken the resources at the appendix of that paper we wrote um, and put it into a website that we're hoping to kind of expand and build out um, with some discipline-specific resources and other resources that we can kind of crowdsource from other clinicians, other researchers, um, folks who are interested in um, helping support other autism clinicians um, in this stuff. So um, there is a website that um, we can share with you um, to hopefully put along with the podcast. It's hosted on the MSU Autism Lab webpage under the resources tab. Um, So that, I'm not gonna tell you the very long link name, but if you go to autismlab.psy.msu.edu, um, that you can just navigate to the resources tab and um, click on the Anti-Black Racism Resources page, which is the page that we're kind of updating currently. Um, and then for me, folks are welcome to um, email me um, or message me or tweet me or these sorts of things on Twitter. So um, my email address is straighten S-T-R-A-I-T-O-N, at msu.edu. And my Twitter is my first and last name, um, so it's at d i o
1: n d r a s t r a i t o n. Great. Um, yeah, I think I think if you guys are interested in looking at that website, that's really where we're hoping to house a lot of these resources. Um, and if there's any listeners um, that you know have any to add, we really are looking to continuous, continuously grow this database. Um, people can reach out to me also on Twitter uh, at Akshia S, so A-K-S-H-E-Y-A-S, um, or email sridha 17 at msu.edu. Thank you so much. One thing um, that we highly value at the Start Institute
0: is not just curiosity, but the ability to evolve as science evolves. So not to make up our mind one time, but to be humble enough to change our minds if the science is pointing us um, in a way that we need to evolve our thinking. So I'd love for each of you to tell me what's one thing you once believed that you've changed your mind about, or one thing that you once believed that your thinking has really evolved in?
2: And start us off, I guess, kind of along the lines of that um, clinical pathway we've talked about. Um, actually, and I also do have a client caseload as well, even though, um, you know, we're training, um, we're in training to be psychologists. And so we do carry some clients on our caseloads. And um, I've worked with um, some Black autistic clients um, in my caseload and actually just getting over the um, discomfort when I'm hearing some reports of things happening maybe at school or m- maybe with the medical system or whatever system it might be um, and being like hmm, that sounds like that could have been like a biased provider that sounds like that could have been structural racism at play um but maybe being like kind of a afraid or um, uncomfortable to like say that to the family. Um, I've actually tried to be a little bit braver with that and kind of saying like, huh, I wonder um, if maybe, you know, race might be a factor in the way that teachers are treating him at school, um, you know, or, you know, he has less support needs maybe at school and maybe, um you know, his teachers are uh, not realizing that um, actually the behaviors that they're concerned about and they think are him acting out are actually related to his autism. Um, And I wonder if he was white, if that would still be the case. And being able to say some of these things to families has actually gone really well. Um, And so just trying to um, get over that discomfort, because I think um, families really appreciate um, when you can kind of name that for them, um, it's often something they're thinking anyway, but maybe are uncomfortable bringing up, um, explicitly. So that's something I've kind of changed my mind on. Like, do I really need to say it if they already kind of know? And it's like, well, uh, I think it really does help build that relationship and, um, help them maybe be motivated to, uh, take some action, um, you know, or even just speak up for themselves in some of those situations. And validate their experience um, and in doing so build
0: relationship because um, we know and from evidence basis that relationship is a powerful mover um, in intervention, so yeah, well done
1: that's great Akshia. yeah. Yeah, um, I think, in addition to doing those things, um, something that I'm really trying to focus on doing is to always be using a strengths based approach. Um, and this is a term that I didn't even learn until maybe like four or five years ago. So for me, it's still relatively new. Um, but I think you know we we so often think about how experiences of discrimination or how certain identities may be disadvantaged, especially in the u s. Um, and I think it's it's highly, highly important to name those experiences and talk through some of those um, things and how it's impacted access to services or whatever it might be. Um, but something that I also try to make sure that I do is to really ask families that I work with about some of the strengths, some of the things that they're proud of. Um, So, you know, in working with Black families, asking them what it means to be Black and what does that mean? Um, Like, what are you proud of, of your background or your culture or whatever it might be, and kind of getting at some of those strengths so that we're also thinking about that side of the coin and how those things can be protective or uh, really helpful and meaningful for the clients that we work with.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you both for the work that you do. Thank you for the way that you do it um, so thoughtfully um, and so with so much encouragement. Um, I really appreciate your being here today. This is a really meaningful, powerful paper. Um, Thank you for sharing it with us. And I look forward to people accessing and indeed contributing to your resources um, around this paper.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. You can find me,
0: Carrie Schmidt, on Instagram at Carrie Schmidt, O-T-D. That's C-A-R-R-I-E-S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-T-D. The Star Institute is a nonprofit organization. You can find out more about us at our website, sensoryhealth.org. That's e n s o r y h e a l There you can join our email list, find out about our educational, clinical, and research endeavors, and make a donation. This podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful guests and the support from the STAR Institute, especially Crystal Hayes and Tori Bluchek. Your feedback matters to us. Please leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. This is Making Sense. I'm Carrie Schmidt.